Good evening. A new commander for CENTCOM heads off to Ukraine. Mitch McConnell calls January 6th an insurrection. We report on a meeting between pro-Trump groups a day before the assault on the Capitol. And a Georgia law attracts the attention of the Israeli government. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, February 8th, 2022. A senior Army three-star general with extensive experience in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars has been nominated to become the top U.S. commander for the Middle East. President Joe Biden nominated Army Lieutenant General Eric Carrilla to head U.S. Central Command, known as CENTCOM, and be promoted to four-star general. If confirmed by the Senate, Carrillo would replace Marine General Frank McKenzie, who has led the command for the past three years and is expected to retire. He was questioned today by a very friendly Senate Armed Services Committee that seemed to take his final uh, approval as uh, a done deal. General Carrillo, for his part, warned senators that if Russia invades Ukraine, it could create broader instability in the Middle East, including Syria. But he insists Iran remains the key threat to U.S. Uh, the uh, the United States and its allies in the region. But he also announced the movement of military forces to Poland and Germany. Right now we are in the process of deploying, and yes, I will be leaving right after the hearing to fly over to be continued part of that deployment. The challenge is obviously uh, moving transatlantic with the number of forces we have. Our mission over there is to assure our NATO allies and deter Russian aggression against our NATO allies. To what extent do you think Putin is hoping for an incident along the border to give him an excuse to go into Ukraine. Senator, I, I could not begin to speak for Putin's uh, thoughts, but I do know uh, I am very concerned about a Russian incursion in invasion into Ukraine. During questioning, Massachusetts Democrat uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren asked the nominee if he had plans to confront the large number of civilians killed by U.S. military action in the war on terror. The Pentagon has repeatedly weakened accountability for civilian casualties. Most recently, there was reporting from the New York Times that detailed a secretive U.S. task force that used loopholes in the law to sidestep safeguards that were designed to protect against civilian casualties. The Times also found that DOD prematurely dismissed many civilian casualty reports at the assessment phase without doing basic due diligence. I think the Secretary of Defense's new civilian harm mitigation and response plan of action that he's asked to come back in 90 days from 27 January, if confirmed, I would look to be able to participate in that to make the process better. And that's Lieutenant General Eric Carrilla, who's the nominee to head the U.S. Central Command, being questioned by Senator Elizabeth Warren. According to various reports, as many as 20,000 civilians, many of them children, have been killed in United States drone strikes during the war on terror. And here in the United States, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, also known as BDS, was set a Delta setback. Although advocates say it was only a propaganda victory for Israel, BDS supporters are promoting a boycott of businesses originating in land they say were legally or was legally seized from Palestinians by Israeli settlers. A new law banning advocates from speaking about the BDS movement on college campuses in Georgia was found unconstitutional last year. It was amended by the state legislature in an attempt to get around the judge's decision.
The controversy began when commentator Abby Martin of The Empire Files, an Internet-based news program, was told that under Georgia law she had to sign an agreement before a speech at a state college stating she would not promote the BDS movement. The original law passed in 2016 requires state employees and contractors to pledge that they do not and will not boycott the Israeli government when their contracts are worth $1,000 or more. Many legislators, including then House Minority Leader Stacey Abrams, voted against the bill on constitutional grounds. Martin took the state to court and won, and the legality of the current law that contains some cosmetic changes has already been questioned. Abby Martin spoke with WBAI today. Back in 2019, I was invited to speak at Georgia Southern University. It's a state university. And in order to speak at a media literacy conference and give the keynote address, I was given a contract that said in the contract that I can never advocate the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel. And I can never advocate for what I feel like is a very strong movement to advocate for Palestinian human rights. And I'm a staunch advocate for that cause. So I was appalled and taken aback at the fact that this language was in such a contract that had nothing to do with Palestine or Israel or anything. And then I realized that these laws are on the books in over half the country. In over half the states in the U.S., there are laws on the books that basically have mandated that you cannot contract with the state if you advocate for the BDS movement. The Israeli lobby has quietly pressured these state legislatures to pass these laws, and what they do is basically strip our First Amendment. The right to peacefully boycott anything has been preserved by the Supreme Court. This was something that goes back to the Montgomery bus boycotts, and this is enshrined into our First Amendment, as well, of course, as the sacred right to free speech. I sued the state of Georgia, and that was in 2020. I launched a lawsuit, and a federal district court judge ruled in my favor and deemed the law unconstitutional. This is the most classic type of censorship, because all we hear about is kind of right-wingers moaning about free speech and censorship on behalf of big tech, which, of course, is a problem when you have big tech working in concert with the state to pressure certain institutions or purge certain viewpoints. But this is the classic textbook censorship where the black hand of the state is coming down and actually institutionalizing uh, censorship on on the most basic levels. This is the state actually passing laws that strip our First Amendment. Did you ever actually violate this contract or did you refuse to sign it? And what happened in, in most recently with the case? I refused to sign the contract because my entire body of work is advocated for Palestinian rights, including our movie Gaza Fights for Freedom, which you can check out online for free. What federal district court judge Mark Cohen, when he ruled in my favor, it was actually on the heels of the latest vicious Israeli onslaught in Gaza. And so there was this tide that had turned across the country, and it was a very optimistic moment. This was such a huge victory for the BDS movement that Israel just completely lost it. They actually threatened to violate the constitutional rights of Americans, basically took to Twitter and started putting out these ominous threats in response to my lawsuit. They actually sent an Israeli consulate official to the Georgia state legislature in a very open and flagrant act of foreign interference and subversion. An Israeli consulate official sat inside the state legislature proceedings and basically pressured them to change the law. So what ended up happening is in the midst of all of this fervor about Russian interference in our democracy, Chinese subversion in our democracy, well, you have Israeli officials literally sitting there (laughs) next to state politicians 
saying, admitting on record that they asked to change the law, to amend the law, to now make my case moot. So what's happened now is it's basically a propaganda coup, a victory for Israel to claim that the law is still in the books, even though it is unenforceable because it still is deemed unconstitutional. But what they did was simply change the language to now apply this fealty oath to Israel to anyone who has a $100,000 contract. So before, it was simply anyone who had a $1,000 contract in the state, and now it's marked up to $100,000. So now what they've done is just maintain the law in the books, even if someone, let's say a Ben and Jerry's or some celebrity, has a state contract for $100,000, it still would be unenforceable because the premise still holds that you can't put a dollar amount on our free speech rights. And that is Abby Martin. She's the host of The Empire Files. You can watch at the empirefiles.tv. I'm going to say that again, the empirefiles, one word, dot TV. You can also get it on YouTube and other sources on the internet. Modeled after the global South African anti-apartheid movement, the BDS movement's goal is to pressure the Israeli government to end the occupation of Palestinian territory. Civil rights organizations have filed free speech lawsuits against anti-BDS laws in Arkansas, Arizona, Maryland, and Texas. And in more news from the Eastern Front, yesterday, President Joe Biden threatened to block the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline if Russia invades Ukraine. The pipeline brings gas to Germany, which must import almost all its energy. Russia is one of the world's largest gas producers. But there seems some doubt in the assertion by Germany's new chancellor, Olaf Scholz. Yesterday, as he spoke with the president, as tensions between the U.S. and Russia grow over the future of Ukraine. Today, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell insisted Germany was on board with shutting down the pipeline in the event of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. News is he confirmed what President Biden said yesterday, that if the invasion occurs, Nord Stream 2 will not go forward. Uh, the, the bad news is that would be after an invasion. And I think the most important thing is for the administration, and the president has all the authority to do this already, to use every tool in his toolbox before the invasion. Mitch McConnell, but American University professor and author Peter Kuznick says the U.S. is biting off more than it can chew with today's Russia and peace, peace in Europe is at stake. The latest is not very encouraging. The meeting between Biden and Scholz in Washington yesterday gave Biden a chance to show how tough he's going to be, do his best Clint Eastwood impersonation, but not move us closer toward diplomatic solutions. The meeting between Macron and Putin in Moscow was a little bit more encouraging. Macron has been the one who's pushing diplomacy the most, along with the Germans, now the Hungarians, maybe the Turks a little bit. And Macron had had five phone conversations with Putin recently before this meeting yesterday. It was almost six hour long meeting. And afterwards, Macron said that one possible avenue for diffusing tensions is the Finlandization of Ukraine. That would be the neutralization of Ukraine, having Ukraine work economically and politically, both with the European countries and the United States and with Russia. 
That would be the ideal situation in my mind. That would be face saving for Putin and also allow Ukraine to maintain its independence, <clears throat> maintain its de democracy and maintain its security. What about the Minsk agreement? Uh, you've had a lot of talk about that. The Minsk agreement was negotiated in 2014 and 2015 by Macron, by Angela Merkel, by Poroshenko for U Ukraine and for by Putin. And it seemed to be the way to resolve this. What it allowed for was greater autonomy for the breakaway republics, Luhansk and Donetsk and the Donbass, and a more federal system. That was acceptable to Putin, we thought initially, to Zelensky also. But he's under a lot of pressure from the nationalists in his own country not to compromise when it comes to that. Some form of that will be the off-ramp ultimately in the Ukrainian crisis. The reality is that Europe is in a very different position. Europe gets 41% of its natural gas from Russia, 25% of its oil from Russia. Germany, especially with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline coming online now, is in a position to get more and more of its gas from Russia. And they're desperate because the price of gas has increased 400% in one year for the Europeans. The president of the United States suggested they would close down Nord Stream 2. If Germany doesn't, is that a, a bellicose statement? I thought it was very provocative on Biden's, on Biden's part. But you've got to look at the situation Biden's in. The withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was 20 years overdue, was handled very, very poorly. And they became a target for his competency, by, especially by the Republicans. He's under pressure from almost all the Republicans. And he's under pressure from some of the Democrats, the hawkish Democrats. He's now wants to show how tough he is. Looking back on this, are we going to see this as a missile crisis moment? There's something very different between this and the Cuban Missile Crisis. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, the U.S. had between a 10 to 1 and a 20 to 1 superiority in nuclear weapons, in bombers, and in missiles. That superiority has been wiped out. In any kind of military confrontation in Europe, the Russians will prevail. How could that be if we spend 10 times more than them on defense? They've spent it smarter. Our defense program is largely a welfare program for the defense contractors. They have their own imperial designs. I don't think they've got imperial designs, but they certainly have security interests that they define differently than we define their security interests. Would it have been different if Donald Trump was president now? Oh, God, what a nightmarish thought. What would Trump do in this situation? He surrounded himself with generals. He would probably look for a military solution there. And his understanding of the geopolitics was so shallow that it's hard to predict what Trump would do in a situation like this. And that is Peter Kuznick, American University professor and author. In related news, three Russian warships could be seen passing through the Dardanelles Strait by uh, a city called Sanakale, Turkey, today, heading toward the Black Sea via the Sea of Marmara to take part in military exercises, according to Russia's defense ministry. The large landing ships, the Korolev, Minsk, and Kaliningrad, were accompanied by boats from the Turkish Black Sea Coast Guard during their passage through the strait, reportedly for security reasons. The three vessels, designed for amphibious coastal landing, and transferring troops, cargo, and armored vehicles are expected to take part in a series of naval exercises in the Black Sea designed to protect Russia from potential military threats by water. 
And on Monday, the Republican National Committee, closely, uh, pardon me, closely aligned with former President Donald Trump, voted to censure two members participating in the investigation of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Today, GOP Representative Elise Stefanik defended the controversial decision, even as it threatens to divide Republicans. The RNC has every right to take any action. And the position that I have is that you're ultimately held accountable to voters in your district, voters who you represent. And we're going to hear the feedback and the views of voters pretty quickly here this year. The two censured Republicans, Kinzinger and Cheney, are members of the committee that is investigating the January 6th insurrection. They are the only two Republicans on the committee. The RNC censure said the Democratic Party-led investigation into the January 6th events amounts to a persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. Nevertheless, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell today criticized the RNC for censuring the two GOP lawmakers. Traditionally, the view of the National Party committees is that we support all members of our party, regardless of their positions on some issues. The issue is whether or not the RNC should be sort of singling out members of our party who may have different views from the majority. That's not the job of the RNC. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. The rioters who broke into the Capitol were repeating Trump's false claims of widespread voter fraud and a stolen win, even after election officials and courts across the country repeatedly dismissed those claims. McConnell and his closest allies have said for months they want to look forward to November 2022 when they have a chance of taking back the Senate and not back to January 2021. We'll have more on the January 6th insurrection after this next story. The rabbi who escaped a hostage takeover at his synagogue synagogue last month testified before Congress for the first time today about his ordeal, detailing why he opened the door for the attackers and uh, the attacker and how he and others were able to flee after the hours long standoff. On the morning of January 15th, when the gunman arrived, Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker of the congregation Beth Israel in Coleyville, Texas, was running late, finishing preparations for the Torah reading, organizing the online setup and checking sound. He told that to a House Homeland Security panel. For many congregations of all backgrounds, CBI strives to be a house of prayer for all people. At the same time, I also value security. In a small congregation, I'm rabbi in tech support and gatekeeper. When our member asked if I knew the person at the door, I was distracted, but I still did a visual inspection. And after a brief word, he appeared to be who he said he was a guy who spent a night outside in sub-40-degree weather. But that was just the first analysis, yes. I served him tea. I also spoke with him throughout the process to learn his story. Who was he? How did he get to CBI? Such conversation is welcoming, and it gave me, the op it gave me an opportunity to see if he was acting nervous or if his story added up. Security and hospitality can go hand-in-hand. I was running late, but I spent time to see if there were any red flags, and I didn't see any. And that is the rabbi. He's upheld as a hero 
for his actions in uh, directing his congregation to escape the hostage taking in which no one was injured except the hostage taker himself who was killed. Citron Walker says six years ago he attended a faith-based security summit hosted by the FBI Department of Homeland Security and Regional U.S. Attorney's Office. It was his first education related to active shooters and the first time he was introduced to the concept of security committee for the synagogue. In more news that has to do with the January 6th Capitol Hill riot, the Federal Bureau of Investigation is probing a meeting in a downtown D.C. garage that's in Washington, D.C., the day before the uh, January 6th insurrection between uh, the meeting was between the then leader of the Proud Boys extremist group and the now indicted leader of the Oath Keepers militia and other far right figures. That's according to two witnesses interviewed by the FBI. Among the half dozen people gathered at a garage near the Phoenix Park Hotel was Oath Keepers head Stuart Rhodes, who was indicted this year on charges of seditious conspiracy in, in the insurrection, and Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tario, who was not present at the riot but was also in the garage meeting leaving Washington afterwards. The meeting put the heads of the nation's two best-known violent far-right pro-Trump groups in immediate proximity to each other 24 hours before the breach at the Capitol. Three attendees or their representatives contacted by news agency Reuters say they didn't discuss matters related to January 6th, but they did include Bianca Garcia, pardon me, Bianca Gracia, who heads a pro-Trump coalition called Latinos for Trump and an affiliated political action committee named Latinos for American First. She was in the garage as well. That's according to witnesses in a video taken by a documentary film crew. Well, Heidi Byrick, who's uh, often been on this news, was former head of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project. She spoke with WBAI earlier today about the significance of these two groups meeting up. This is an incredible thing to find out that there was a meeting of all places in a downtown D.C. garage on January 5th by two of the groups who now have several members who have been indicted for conspiracy of various sorts. Usually they try to keep sort of a, a separation between these movements. It's been less so in recent years, but in the past that was the case. But apparently now there is no line uh, that the anti-government movement won't cross. They were united by their support of Trump, it appears. By their support of Trump about their anger over the election. And I think even more astounding are the fact that in this garage meeting you had people from specifically pro-Trump groups like Latinos for Trump. That's also quite fascinating. How much coordination actually went on before January 6th? I don't know, but I would have never thought this to be the case. Them together would involve all their followers and their organizations in a vast conspiracy. It's looking every day like there was a lot more conspiring going on behind the scenes than any of us thought. Certainly what happened on January 6th was not just some weird eruption of sort of mob violence. There was a lot of planning, apparently, and between some of the most hardcore people who showed up that day at the Capitol, it's it's astounding. Who's Rhodes and who is Tario? Stuart Elmer Rhodes started the Oath Keepers right about the time that President Obama came into office. And the group's point, the reason it's called Oath Keepers, is that its members believe that they should keep to their interpretation of oaths, whether an oath to the Constitution or similar things. And the Oath Keepers' ranks are made up, we know, because of some leaks of a lot of veterans, military veterans, cops, 
active duty military and their positions have basically been that the federal government is evil and that Trump is saving the republic. That's a very different kind of organization than the Proud Boys, who like to spout racist ideas, get in street fights. They've been involved in street fights all over the country. These are kind of different organizations with different political positions. But what did unite them all was Trump. Proud Boys, for example, served as security events put on by Proud Boy um, ally Roger Stone down in Florida. And most people will remember that Trump spoke of the Proud Boys specifically in one of the presidential debates this last time around. It looks like Trump was galvanizing groups that have different kinds of points of view around this idea that the election was stolen and he'd basically gotten the shaft over all this. Is the Department of Justice and the FBI falling uh, short on this? Shouldn't they be hitting these folks with much harder charges? It's a legitimate question to ask, though I will have to say that even though a lot of people involved on January 6th have gotten light sentences and charged with very low-level crimes, the conspiracy cases against the 3% or militia What's happening to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, those are serious cases that could result in very long prison sentences. Part of this is the Department of Justice is overwhelmed with some 750 cases right now. You do have to wonder what would have happened if this had been, for example, a lot of black folks who'd gone into the Capitol. Members of the Oath Keepers included took over a wildlife preserve in Oregon and held it for several days. And the charges coming out of that were also very light. People made the point, what if it had been Islamic folks or something else? Would it be the same? But some of these charges are very serious. They have a lot of support that they have dark money and things like that behind them. These are all really good questions. I can say that the trail in this case around January 6th, the investigations keep leading further and further up the food chain into the Trump world, his allies, some people who were White House staff, etc. So I think as the January 6th committee keeps digging into this, we're going to learn more and more and more about what may have happened in this garage meeting is astounding. Heidi Byrick is former head of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, February 8th, 2022. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.